When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. To welcome everybody to today's presentation on animal-assisted therapy, I am Dr. Donnelly Snipes. Today, we're really going to hit the highlights. There's so much you can learn about animal-assisted therapy and animal-assisted activities, but we're going to start out by defining animal-assisted therapy, explore some of the research around animal-assisted therapy, and talk about different ways you can use animal-assisted therapy in practice, and then we'll review some general cautions of course, you know, not animal therapy is not going to work for everybody, and then you'll be done. A lot of people confuse animal-assisted activities with animal-assisted therapy. Animal-assisted activities includes the integration of animals into activities to facilitate motivation, education, recreation, encourage casual interaction without following a specific set of criteria or goals. The animal is there to provide companionship, comfort, and, you know, maybe some distraction, those sorts of things. When we bring animals to senior centers, for example, a lot of times that's animal-assisted activities. We're not trying to get them to do anything in particular. We are trying to bring them some joy and give them an animal to pet, may release some oxytocin, yada, yada. Animal-assisted therapy is the intentional and therapeutic use, whereby the animal's role is integral in assisting with mental health, speech, occupational, or physical therapy goals, and it augments cognitive, physical, social, and or emotional well-being. When we bring an animal in to work with someone who may have PTSD or anxiety or depression, then that moves more towards animal-assisted therapy. We want to see their panic attacks reduce. We want to see their depression symptoms become relieved to a certain extent. We're going to talk about different behavioral and emotional targets throughout this class. We're really splitting hairs here when we talk about the difference. There are a lot of ways that animals can be used in practice. It is important to recognize, though, that animal-assisted activities, again, have no clear goal. It's not that I want to help the person reduce their anxiety or it's not that I want to help the person become more active. It is just the animal is there as a comfort factor, if you will. I'm not finding the right word for it. General, general benefits of animal-assisted activities and animal-assisted therapy. It can reduce blood pressure. They found that petting an animal, doesn't matter what kind of animal, petting an animal for 10 to 20 minutes can reduce blood pressure and increase the release of oxytocin, which is our bonding hormone. Bonus, it can increase the understanding of unconditional positive regard. And when I work with animal therapy in my practice, most, well, all of my animals are what we call failed fosters. They were animals that I was fostering and I just couldn't let them go for some reason. You can have a, actually, I worked with one today at uh, the Animal Rescue Corps, a three-legged dog. Oh, bless this little dog's heart, was so sweet and just was an amazing little creature. However, it was not perfect. It did not have four legs. That didn't mean it... Um, that, that didn't mean it was any less lovable. And that's one of the things that we can help clients with with animal therapy. Dogs, we're sp stick with dogs right now, but dogs and horses pretty much love you 
no matter if you have a cold and you're snotting everywhere and you haven't taken a bath in two days because you had a fever or whatever the case may be. I mean, painting a really gross picture here. Or if you, you know, are all gussied up for going out on the town. A dog doesn't care. Dog doesn't care what you look like. A dog just loves you for you. By the same token, a lot of people have unconditional positive regard for animals. They'll see an animal that is less than perfect or may have some behavioral issues. However, they, a lot of people will gravitate toward that animal and they will love that animal despite its imperfection. And I highlight this in practice and I help people see that, you know, what drew you to this animal or this animal's not perfect. Why is it that you love them or you really want to be around them and helping them see that creatures, things can be lovable even if they're not perfect. And most everybody, animal, person, otherwise, we're not perfect. And then we turn that around and say, okay, so you're not perfect, but does that mean you're unlovable? Other animals that, you know, I've worked with, one-eyed cat, I had a blind horse that I worked with for a while, and that's, that's saying something to have a horse that's completely blind, bless her heart. Encouraging people, and this encourages people to have empathy for the animal and the challenges they may be going through. In the wild, you know, a blind horse probably wouldn't make it very long, and a three-legged dog probably wouldn't do nearly as well than as you know, a four-legged dog and helping them understand, helping people understand that, you know, th this new situation provides the animal a sense of safety. Animal assisted therapy can increase the ab ability to take multiple perspectives. You know, my own perspective, when an animal comes up to me and is barking and dogs I worked with this morning, I had to go around and feed. We have a little over a hundred dogs in rescue right now. And I had to go around and feed the different dogs and I put the food in one one area for one dog, and then I opened up the cage for the other dog, and I put her food down on the other side of the cage, so they weren't, you know, nose to nose. But the first dog, even though I had already fed her, went bananas trying to guard her food from the other dog. She was so, uh, well, um, she's emaciated right now anyway, but uh, she'll be putting putting some good weight on really quickly understanding where that aggression came from. Does she have some food aggression right now? Yes. Why might that be? And this is where we encourage people instead of looking at something going, oh, that's a, that's a bad dog. Looking at it with curiosity and saying, I wonder what prompted that behavior? What function does that behavior serve? And with these animals, we don't know their background, but we do know that looking at them, they're a lot of them are emaciated right now, so they're hungry. And of course, I'm going to guard my food if I'm hungry. And that encourages people to get out of their own head and get out of their own interpretations and be curious. It enhances empathy and compassion. When you work with animals, when you see them, you can start learning how to read their body language. When their ears are back and their tails tucked, you know, they're, they're either scared or they're ashamed, if you want to use that word, with animals. I use the, the gamut of emotional uh, words with when we're talking about animals. But there's definitely demeanors, and you can learn a lot from the nonverbals that the animals are communicating, which helps us develop empathy. You know, you see an animal that is looking scared. It's like, oh my gosh, poor thing. Most of us can relate. We've been in a situation where we've been scared before. Most of us can have compassion for these animals that may be struggling. They may be scared. They may even be a little bit, um, I hate to use the word aggressive, but I will, uh, aggressive because they're afraid. And that empathy can help us understand, you know, think about a time when you were afraid that you lashed out, that you, you know, tried to push people away. Interestingly, since animals, especially dogs, tend to mirror their humans' feelings, it increases mindfulness quite a bit, and it can provide some biofeedback, if you will. When people are upset and, and sad, a lot of times dogs will come, you know, give you love and snuggle up. Somehow they know this. When you get excited in some way, and, you know, my dog Brewster, 85-pound boxer, when I get excited, he doesn't differentiate between angry, excited, and happy, excited. If I start talking in an excited voice, he gets excited. If 
and there is a little bit of discrimination when I start talking in an angry voice. He tends to run back and forth between whomever I'm talking to and me. Like, okay, y'all need to, to chill this out. But that provides a lot of awareness. And, and sometimes we don't even realize we're talking in, quote, angry voice. But if Brewster gets, starts getting fired up, it causes all of us in the house, whoever's there, to sort of check ourselves. And a lot of times, you know, my son will get upset about politics or something and he'll start ranting. And it's not at anybody in particular. It's, he's just ranting. And he's using angry voice. So Brewster gets upset and Sean will, will check himself. Animals provide stress reduction and laughter. You know, if you give a dog a balloon and let them, you know, chase it around the house, not all dogs are good with balloons. Some will try to eat them, but most of them like to hit it with their nose. It can make you laugh. You can go on YouTube pretty much any day of the week and find good animal videos that will make you laugh. When you play with a dog, a lot of times, you know, that can help reduce stress. When you laugh, it release, releases endorphins. When you release endorphins, and, and it also encourages you to breathe more deeply, both of those trigger the relaxation response. Animals can increase physical activity. If you have a dog, unless you um, litter box train it, which only the smallest of dogs can be litter box trained, you're going to have to take it out for a walk. That might not sound like a lot, but for some people, that's a lot of activity to start with, especially if they're clinically depressed or they're struggling with something like fibromyalgia or rheumatoid arthritis. That may be a lot of freaking movement. Obviously, we want to make sure we're not asking the person to do something that they cannot do. But the increased physical activity, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, also helps people set or maintain their circadian rhythms. Dogs have to go out first thing in the morning. Dogs have to go out before bed. And it encourages people, especially those with clinical depression, to get up and go out and walk the dog. And once they actually do that, you know, it's gotten their blood moving a little bit, and it helps them start feel a little bit, to feel a little better. Then when they come in, the dog needs to eat. Okay, let's do that. Once they finish that, they're awake, and it's starting to help their, them get their juices flowing for the day, so to speak. It helps with consistency and clear communication. This is true mainly with dogs and horses, and or dogs and equines. We have some donkeys, as you saw in the beginning. Um, we need to be clear about what we want them to do. Cats could care less for the most part what we ask them to do. And obviously guinea pigs and gerbils and those sorts of things, again, can, could care less. But dogs and horses are really responsive to training. And in order to train them effectively, you need to be clear in your communication. We're going to talk more about that too. Animal-assisted therapy can also decrease learned helplessness behaviors and increase a sense of control over self and the environment. Once people, well, people may come to counseling and believe that, you know, the world is against them. They have no control over anything. They have no control over their mood. They have no control, whatever. They can't control their kids. They can't control how people treat them. We want to start helping them see what they are able to control, and how their behaviors may be eliciting reactions from other people. And it may be a negative um, bi-directional relationship where they can turn it into a positive one. Animal-assisted therapy can act as a bridge by which therapists can reach patients who are withdrawn, uncooperative, and uncommunicative. And, um, equine therapy and dog Therapy has been really helpful with this. In some cases, cats, with really special cats, uh, that will work too. But sometimes the person will get distracted, if you will, when they're brushing the horse or they're brushing the dog, playing with the dog, and they'll start talking. And they're not as much on guard, and they feel a little bit more willing to talk. It's hard to look somebody, especially somebody you don't know very well, dead in the eye and start telling them, your deepest, darkest secrets sometimes. When they're able to not have to make that eye contact, they're able to do something with their energy while they're talking, it can be helpful. If the client is uncooperative and uncommunicative, the animal can be used as a reward for active participation. So if we go out and to the barn and do our session out there, are you going to be willing to 
talk to me a little bit. Participants interacting with the animals are often more inclined to smile and demonstrate pleasure or more, more sociable and relaxed with other participants. You can do this in group. You don't have to do this one-on-one. -on -one. Obviously, one-on-one -on -one is how most people do it. If you have four, four horses in the barn, then you theoretically could have four people brushing horses and engaging with one another. Or you could have people take turns with the same horse, depending on how chill the horses are and how, how much ability you have to supervise. More sensitive issues, as I said, can be rendered less incendiary when an animal's involved. You're not having to make direct eye contact with one another. The patient is focusing on the animal. And by petting the animal, that enables them to continue to release that oxytocin and have a sense of, a little bit of a sense of calm. When the person starts to get upset, a lot of times the animal will respond in kind. I worked, the blind horse that I worked with was very um, stoic, if you will. When people would get upset, she wouldn't react. She would just be very, a, a very stable, calm presence. Now, any of you who know anything about um, horses uh, will understand when I tell you she was 18 and a half hands high. She was a big old horse and well she was a mule actually but I digress so just to brush her back we had to get up on a step stool I'm only 5'4 so I wasn't able to reach the middle of her back by standing on the ground but being able to be next to something that massive and it is very calming in some strange way a multi-sensory aspect is also available when an animal is involved increasing the level of attention and interest of the client who is active or struggles with focus or attention if they're brushing a lot of times it can help them rein in their focus a little bit and stay with you instead of going six different directions if you are maybe you're listening to this lecture right now and your mind is going six different directions it's hard to stay focused sometimes especially if you're not an auditory person when people are given something to do with their hands they find it helps you helps them stay focused if it can just be petting the animal it doesn't have to be brushing or anything mm. which animals can be used <clears throat> and I put AAA for animal assisted activities and AAT for animal assisted therapy fish guinea pigs and rabbits are pretty much only good for animal-assisted activities. Now, you can learn a lot from rabbits, but I digress. Dogs, cats, horses, and dolphin are all trainable. They all can increase activity. Dolphins can be, have been used to work with people who have difficulty with mobility, and obviously they can be trained to provide the same benefits potentially as you would get from a dog, you know, training a dog. <clears throat> Let's talk about equine therapy or hippotherapy for the moment. A lot of times hippotherapy uses horse movement to complement therapy. It's used a lot for people who have some sort of physical limitation or physical condition that they're rehabilitating. When you're riding a horse, you're having to maintain your balance. You know, it's not super hard if the horse is just gently walking. But if you have difficulty controlling your balance, controlling your movement, it can increase a sense of self-awareness, proprioception. It's great for all those sorts of things. It can help develop trust and respect. One of the activities that you can do with an animal is called meeting or join up. And animals are horses and, and donkeys are prey animals and understanding this prey predator relationship if they don't know you a lot of times if you just walk straight up to a horse or a donkey they're going to walk away because you are a predator in in their minds helping people understand that you don't want to just walk up to something who sees you as a threat once they know you they're going to be willing to come up and with the donkeys that we have they're mini donkeys we do a join-up activity where we go out and in the pasture, the donkeys get to see us, but we actually intentionally turn our backs or turn to the side if people aren't ready to turn their backs completely to the donkey. And the donkey eventually walks up. Once they see that you're not approaching them aggressively and you're actually in the subordinate position when you are facing away, 
then they'll come up and be curious. And, you know, my hair is about the color of straw, so generally they try to eat my hair. But it provides an interesting dynamic for people to process. Why did the donkey behave this way when you walked directly up to it or when we first came into the pasture? And why did it behave differently when we turned our back? Developing trust and respect can be accomplished just through petting. Even our mini donkeys are 450 pounds. That's a big old animal. And helping people get used to being around the animal and developing a sense of trust that the animal is not going to hurt them is helpful. Feeding the animal. I know our donkeys, um, they love their food. And sometimes animals can get a little bit ornery when. It's feeding time and helping the person learn to trust the animal and helping the animal learn to trust the person through working with nonverbals can help people see what they're, tell, um, what they're communicating through their nonverbals. If an animal starts to come up to you when, when we first got our donkeys, I'm not a horse person, never had horses before in my life, and, and we got these two mini donkeys, and when it was feeding time, they would come charging up and, and whoopee would actually sort of start nipping at your jacket because she wanted food. Now, just with her lips, not with her teeth. But when you're not used to equines, that can be kind of intimidating. And it took me a minute to get used to that and understand, okay, she's just, you know, being herself. Or she would come up and, like, goose you with her from the, from the backside with her whole head because she knew it was feeding time and she wanted her food. We had to work with her to communicate to her that that's not how you get your food. I wouldn't have wanted clients to experience that because if they hadn't been around horses before, because that would have probably been pretty intimidating. Letting them know and sharing that story with them helps them, again, get out of their head instead of saying, oh my gosh, this animal's trying to attack me. Think, I wonder what this animal is thinking right now. Why are they trying to do this? Uh, hippotherapy can help address personalization and explore dialectics. When we got the donkeys, and even today, they don't like to go into the trailer. They don't like to go into the dark barn. And I didn't understand that at first, why that might be. And, you know, they didn't do it. And I'm like, you know, the, their food's in there. I don't understand why they won't go into the barn. And then I did some reading because it was curious to me. Turns out they don't switch vision into their their night vision or whatever you want to call it, when they go from a light area to a dark area, it takes a while for their vision to actually accommodate longer than ours does. It was scary for them to go into this dark place when they'd been outside for a while. Once I understood that, then it was a much different interaction between me and the donkeys. We'd walk up to the door and I'd make sure the lights were on in the barn first so it was easier for them. It still wasn't quite as bright, but their eyes adjusted more quickly. But I would wait for a second at the threshold of the door until they started getting comfortable. Equine therapy can provide bonding and relaxation. You know, once the person gets to know the animal and the animal gets to know the person, they recognize each other and they seem to understand and relate to each other, especially dogs and horses. They're smart critters. I've never worked with pigs, so I'm not dissing pigs. I know they're really smart animals too. It can help build confidence. I know the first time I rode on a horse, and I haven't ridden on many, but of course they put me on this big Clydesdale the first time I'm riding a horse, and I'm like, Jiminy Cricket, <laughs> I'm going to die. I took a breath. And I realized that, hey, I can do this. And, you know, nothing bad is going to happen. I got my rhythm. And after that, I felt more confident about my ability to be around that particular animal. Hippotherapy provides a sense of acceptance despite being different. Like I said er in the last slide, choose animals that have what I call differences. I don't like to call them disabilities or anything because most animals work around their unique challenges. So they're different. You know, they may have one eye. There's one cat and in the rescue right now who will forever have a tilted head. And she's been to the vet. They don't know why that her head is tilted, but she's very, very happy and plays and eats and does everything else. So she's unique. Okay. And we can highlight unique animal pairs when you're working with horses. You know, sometimes horses and deer 
will pair up. Helping people see that something as regal as a horse, you know, can be afraid. It can learn to trust you. It can develop relationships with things that aren't horses. How awesome is that? Now, how can we translate that into our own life? The diversity of a farm experience offers much stimulation and provides the basis for creative and varied intervention, such as providing the client with opportunities to practice nurturing activities, helping people learn how to treat animals as they want to be treated, as they should be treating themselves. They can work with, you know, with rabbits. Obviously, you know, changing their litter box isn't so fun, but, you know, brushing them, that's something that's fun. Holding them in a way that they feel safe. Rabbits typically hate being held. They hate being carried. Um, they're, they're prey animals. And how do you need to hold this animal so it's safe? And a, a rabbit really does relax when it feels like it's not in danger. Our chickens, there are nurturing activities you can do with chickens, feeding them, for example. Most chickens don't like to be held, but you can watch as the animals interact with one another. We've got ducks, too. And, you know, rest in peace, our blind duck died. I have a lot of blind animals. I don't know why. But Sai Sai lived for five-plus years completely blind. And her, whatever you call a group of ducks, always took care of her. When they went out to the, to the pond, they would call for her. They would chatter so she could hear, and she would follow the sound. And if she got lost or confused about where she was, she would start squawking, and they would call back to her, and she would get oriented by the sound. So it was interesting how, you know, they weren't born together. They weren't nest mates or anything, but the ducks that she was around did recognize her as one of their own, and they protected her. People can learn organizational skills. On a farm, there's always something to be done. You know, things got to be mucked. Um, litter boxes have to be changed. P animals have to be fed. There's stuff going on constantly. Helping people develop organizational skills. All right, you may have a group of eight adolescents, and we need to get all of our morning chores done. How are we going to make this happen? Encourages them to problem solve and plan and figure out how to accomplish a task. Perspective taking, and this can be done with any animal, not just farm animals, recognizing that no two animals are exactly alike. We have three dogs, and they are very, very different creatures. I have had labs before, and I've had three different labs in my lifetime, and none of them was the same. So I can't go by breed and say all labs are, all boxers are. Each animal has its own personality and help them take the perspective of that animal again with curiosity why is it that this animal is reacting this way to this stimulus right now dogs dogs are a lot easier for most of us a lot of people don't have barns they can't have horses to do equine therapy with or hippotherapy so that's fine Dogs. Most of us can have dogs. A dog's social life is organized around a dominance-subordinate relationship. There is always an alpha in the pack. Once people start understanding this, then they can start understanding a little bit more about the behavior. In our house, I told you Brewster is 85-pound boxer, and Dookie is about a 40-pound hound dog, and Raina is a 17-pound rat dog, um, rat terrier mix something. And but Raina always eats first. Somehow Raina is the dominant dog in that triad. And the other two dogs will sit patiently behind her while she eats at the food dish until she's finished. And when she's, when she's done, she will walk away and let them eat, <laughs> which, you know, it's quite a sight to see. But it is a hierarchy that they've established and it works for them. Dogs are expected to obey commands and offer clients what is often referred to as unconditional acceptance. Brewster is the boxer and Duke is the hound dog. Both of them love people. Brewster will be all up in your business. He thinks he's a chihuahua. Duke, on the other hand, he has a mind of his own. And, you know, if he picks up a scent somewhere, his brain shuts off and he goes tracking. Getting him back and getting him, you know, refocused can be a challenge. And we talk about, you know, why is he doing that that way? And why does it, why is he not necessarily coming the first time he's called? Part of that 
is because he's been conditioned that way. You know, he knows that, you know, I'll call him one time, but I may end up calling him two or three more times before I actually put on my shoes and go out into the pasture and, you know, make him come in. So he has learned that's my inconsistency, if you will, with training Duke. Now, if I were consistent, I called him once, he didn't come in, I went out and got him, then he would know he's got one chance to come in. There can be differences in people's responses during sessions um, when they're working with dogs. And a lot of times you'll see more laughing, increased eye contact, communication with the dog. I'm sorry, I'm not a kid and I still talk to my dogs. And a desire to connect with the dog through feeding the dog treats. A lot of people, I won't say most people, a lot of people like dogs. And you do need to take people's prior exposure and experiences to animals into consideration before you necessarily introduce an animal into therapy. You also want to consider allergies, but more prominent as, as far as a problem is concerned is generally people's prior experiences. By teaching people positive dog training techniques, you can help them understand clear communication. With some dogs, especially the smarter dogs, may get confused if you have even the smallest change in what you're doing. Our dogs, for example, um, when we say down, that means get off the bed or get off the sofa. Yes, we let them up on the sofa. Um, but when we want them to lay down, we use the word plots. That helps them understand. If we use the same, if we use lay down and down to mean lay down or get off the furniture, they would be confused because they would hear down and wouldn't understand. We explore when animals don't respond the way we want them to. Explore why. Again, is it something within them? A prior learning experience? Is it something within me? Am I not being consistent or clear in the way I'm communicating my message? And then we translate that into real life. You know, why is your child not doing what you expect when you tell him to clean his room and, you know, it doesn't get done or it only gets done halfway? Well, maybe he's like Duke and he's used to you saying, clean your room, clean your room, clean your room. And then when he doesn't clean his room, you go in there and clean it for him. Well, you rewarded that behavior. Helping people under start looking at that. Teaching positive dog training techniques helps with relationship development. You develop trust. The dog develops trust, especially if you're working with uh, older foster dogs, not an eight-week-old puppy that can be a little bit challenging because their memory and their bladder are both very, very short. Um, but developing trust with, with a new animal you don't just walk up to a strange animal and lean over it, especially a dog. That's very threatening to them. Why wouldn't you want to wrap your arms around its neck and give it a great big hug? Well, you know, think about what would happen if another dog did that. That's actually a pretty vulnerable state for them to be in. Encouraging people, you know, adults, children, whomever's working with the dog, to understand they have to earn the dog's trust and the dog has to earn their trust as well. You don't want to just go in and assume, oh, isn't a cute puppy? It won't bite me. You know, you don't know that. It's trust goes both ways. Respect goes both ways. If I know that a dog doesn't like something, I'm not going to necessarily, well, I'm probably not going to do it to them at all unless it's something like getting their nails trimmed that has to be done occasionally. But giving the dog respect, giving them space, you know, if they start running from you, not chasing after it, like Elmira going, oh, here, puppy, whoopee, you know, that's not giving it respect. That's threatening. It develops people's ability to nurture. When they see an animal, they can pet the animal. They can help it feel happy and safe. And you can talk about how do you think the dog feels when you have it sitting in your lap and you're petting it. Now, how could you get that same feeling yourself? What could someone do or another animal or a dog do to give you that feeling of nurture? And termination is another thing that can go really well or can be learned really well with animal-assisted therapy because most times the person is not going to take the animal with them. They're going to have to say goodbye at a certain point and helping them learn how to terminate that relationship 
can be a big part of the grieving process for some of their prior relationships as well, helping them let go of some of that stuff. Remember the good times, yada, yada. Remember the lessons learned. Dog training techniques help you understand empathy. If a dog's getting frustrated, if you've been at this whole sit-stay-down thing for 30 minutes, the dog is probably getting tired, and the trainer is probably getting tired. So recognizing, you know, what the dog's feeling, your pro- or what you're feeling, the dog's probably feeling too, helps them start developing empathy. Looking at them, like this one dog that I walked past today, I had a wheelie cart, and it was making a, loud, a lot of rattling noises. It was a loud wheelie cart. And as soon as I walked by this dog's cage, she tucked her tail and put her ears back and got as small as she could and started kind of pacing back and forth in her, in her little crate. Oh my gosh, I felt so bad. So obviously I had to stop the cart and go over and talk to her for a second. But I had empathy for her because clearly for some reason, this loud wheelie thing was scaring her to death. So encouraging clients to take that and translate that into real life. When can you have empathy? How can you be more mindful and aware of what's going on and empathize with somebody when they may be expressing a an unintended or an undesired reaction? We talked about perspective taking. Dog training also teaches delayed gratification. You don't always give a dog a treat after every a single time they do something well. Initially, you start out giving them a treat every time they follow the command, and then you start backing it off. It was every third or fifth time, and you use a variable ratio schedule. But it helps them learn how to implement behavior change, maybe with their kids. It also helps them learn how to initiate behavior change within themselves, recognizing that, okay, I don't have to have a reward every single time. If I get nervous, it doesn't have to go away right away. When I take my um, dogs to the vet, and I think we've all done this, you know, they want to get out of the car. They don't want to be going to the vet. They don't like the vet. I can't make that happen for them. I can make them feel as safe as possible while we're going to the vet. And then, you know, we generally, they generally get a treat when they leave the vet or whatever. But it's a delay of gratification. They can't get what they want right then, but they know they're going to get that feeling of safety and love and treats at some point. And people start identifying the connection between behaviors and consequences in a non-threatening manner. If I come up to a dog and, you know, I come up really fast and it's a dog who's never met me before, they're probably going to react fearfully because technically I am higher on the food chain. I am a predator. Um, If the dog has had a prior abuse or abandonment experience where they may not be comfortable with humans, how is my behavior triggering that animal to react in that way? Taking that and translating it into life after you work with the person through the session. Throughout the week, I want you to watch how your behavior influences others. If you walk by somebody and smile, what happens? If you are walking by somebody and have an angry face on, what happens? Teaching people positive dog training also helps them learn patience and consistency. You tell a dog to sit, they may sit, they may not, and you have to be patient. It's going to take a while before the dog gets it right 100% of the time. When you're learning a new skill at work, it's going to take a while before you get it right 100% of the time. You have to be patient. You want to see consistent improvement, not expect immediate perfection. Helps them to develop clear verbal and nonverbal communication. A lot of times when I work with dogs, we use hand commands in addition to verbal commands, which makes the com- what's going on even clearer. They learn about relationship development, develop empathy and compassion, enhance perspective taking, delay gratification, understand the connection between their behaviors and confidence and, and consequences, and increase confidence and self-efficacy. A lot of times people have never had an experience where they have worked with something. They haven't been able to change their own behavior. They haven't been able to modify their animal's behavior. They may just, all their dogs may be untrainable or unruly. No, just they haven't been trained yet. This gives people confidence that, hey, I can affect something in my environment. I can change some things. I do have the ability to communicate my needs or my desires and potentially get those met. 
Working with dogs and other animals, but dogs and horses especially, helps separate bad behaviors from bad organisms. And I say organisms because in animal-assisted therapy, we're talking about animals, but then they're going to translate it to later life. When a dog does something that you don't like, maybe they charge the fence or they growl and raise their hackles. Okay, that's not a behavior we want. That's an inappropriate behavior, but it doesn't mean the dog is bad. It means the behavior was bad, and we want to look at why did that dog respond that way, and we'll get down here somewhere to um, identifying positive redirection. Why did that dog respond in that way, and how else could that dog respond? If you come home and the dog's chewed up your shoe, oh my gosh, that is a not a behavior you want. But why did he do that? Maybe he was anxious. Maybe he is teething. Who knows? What else could you do? Give him something appropriate to chew on. Hey, who knew? So the dog isn't bad. It's the behavior. People aren't bad. It's their behavioral choices that are bad. It improves the awareness of cognitive distortions, especially personalization. When they say, oh, that dog hates me. The dog doesn't know you. The dog sees you as higher on the food chain and a potential predator, so the dog may be afraid of you, but it's looking at you as a human, not you as Sally Jane. Let's start to get to know the dog. That helps with personalization issues, helping people get into the dog's mind a little bit. All or nothing thinking. Animals hate me. I've heard that before. Okay, really, I wonder why, I wonder why that is. And we start looking at, do all animals hate you? Have you had good relationships with animals? Sometimes people had a bad interaction with an animal when they were knee-high to a grasshopper, and every time they've seen an animal since then, they've gotten tense and anxious and just telegraphed to that animal, there's a threat. So the animal says, oh, there's a threat. This is bad news. So we start talking about, you know, what might you be communicating to the dog or to the animal that makes them think you're a threat and not want to be around you. Teaches people the appropriate way to treat themselves and others. It helps the person get out of their own head. When people are depressed, sometimes they don't want to get out of bed. When they have a dog to feed and take out, then they're likely going to get up. They feel a sense of responsibility for this animal. When they have an addiction, they may think about that animal before they go out and relapse again or whatever the case may be, that animal becomes something that they can care about and put to get out of their own head. Instead of feeling, oh, poor me, they think, okay, oh, poor me, but the dog's got to go out. It serves as a biofeedback monitor like we talked about. The dog models unconditional positive regard. It helps reward and helps people de-escalate, which reduces anxiety and depression. And this can be used anywhere Doctor's office visits, studying, flying, anything that causes the person anxiety. Dogs can be really helpful for reducing hypervigilance for people with PTSD. Um, For people who have panic attacks or seizures, some dogs can be trained to notice when minuscule signs, if you will, before those things happen to alert the person that, okay, this is getting ready to happen so they can get into a safe place. We talked before about how dogs help increase physical activity even if it's just walking them, but sometimes, you know, a lot of times when you have dogs, you're also going to play with them. So it can, you know, get people out from in front of the computer and playing. And this activity will help maintain circadian rhythms because dogs typically, you know, have a rhythm that they go by. And cats are socialized based on a give and take, mutual reciprocity, and respect for their independent nature. Most cats are not going to be like dogs. There are a few cat dogs out there, but most cats are going to be very independent and aloof, and they will come give you attention when they darn well feel like it. However, um, there are some cats. My cat Mojo notices, I don't know how, but he notices when I'm upset or I'm sick. And as soon as I sit down, if I'm, you know, in a funk for some reason, he will come get up on on my belly and pad or make biscuits on my chest and then lay down and purr. And there is just something very relaxing about having a cat purring. Some cats are really good animal therapy. Most cats, not so much. In contrast to the human horse or human dog relationship, Chandler listed the following attributes for felines in therapy. They can be quiet and calm. They're not going to get riled up and bark and run around and chase their tail. Most cats 
have a pretty good level of comfort with being touched. They increase people's motivation to be around other people. If a cat's in the room, you can talk about the cat. You can pet the cat. Cats tend to, for some reason, help people relax and be more talkative. Playful cats offer lighthearted moments, which can act as an icebreaker. And like all the other animals, can act as distraction or distress tolerance when discussing stressful events. How do we use it? You can teach the client how to direct the animal and then collaboratively problem solve when confronted with an obstacle to promote self-monitoring, mindfulness, and to empower the client and encourage generalization to daily life situations, like parenting, consistency, and clear communication. If you want the animal to sit, what do you need to do to communicate that to the dog? And, you know, if you want your child to take a bath, how do you communicate that to your child? Teaching them consistency and clear communication. If one day you're willing to say it five times before you get, before there's a negative consequence, and another day you only say it one time before there's a negative consequence, that's not consistent. Helping people see consistency. Communicating with a spouse or a boss, making sure to articulate exactly what you want or what you need to have happen. Dogs can't read your mind. Most other people can't either. Giving and receiving affection can be learned through working with the animal. Being aware of emotions and nonverbal communications can also be taught. People can be taught to read the nonverbals of the animal. Rabbits have them, cats have them, dogs have them, horses have them, in order to understand, is this animal angry, afraid, content, whatever. And understanding the reciprocal nature of interactions. When I greet Brewster at the door, or actually he greets me at the door, he's very, very excited. And if I reward that behavior, then when I come in the next time, he's going to continue to be very, very excited, which means jumping and acting the fool. I don't want him to do that. He's too big to do that. So when we walk, I walk in the door, I ignore him when I first walk in until he calms down. And as soon as he's calmed down, I will give him the acknowledgement that he's looking for. The client and counselor can collaborate collaboratively develop behavioral experience that involve animals. If a client believes she cannot be assertive, a behavioral task may be as simple as calling for an animal to come in or placing the client in charge of directing the animal to accomplish a task. Sit down, lay down, get down, jump up, whatever it is. The counselor could question the client to encourage mindfulness of her actions and experience to to help expose cognitive distortions. When she starts thinking, this is never going to work, or I can't do this. Cognitive rehearsal can be facilitated uh, using assertiveness that the client has has used or encountered assertiveness problems the client has had in the past. Like we talked about about earlier, having the client try to walk a donkey into, into the barn or get a dog into a crate. You know how that can go. How can you do this gently, effectively communicating what you want and getting the animal on board? Discuss with the client her thoughts as the animal resists, gives up, gets angry, whatever. Uh, We want to talk about how do you feel when the animal's not listening or being resistant. Discuss reasons why the animal may not be complying and work through the exercise to increase assertiveness and create a win-win. Okay, the dog doesn't want to go into the crate. He sees this as a threat. Why? Well, when he's been in the crate before, he's gone to the vet. So he associates the crate with the vet. How can we make this a win-win? Maybe by putting a treat in the back of of the crate or using the crate for things other than going to the vet. Activities designed to draw attention to existing dynamics encourage the family to acknowledge current behaviors and interrelationships and reflect on healthier interaction. One scenario might be asking that a family work together to maneuver a horse or a dog from point A to point B without talking to each other or the animal, just using nonverbals. Or parent and child can concretely explore the metaphor of feeling reined in through horse or dog work. They can discover the animal is more compliant and responsive with a little bit of a looser rein or leash. When they're held tight, the animal may fight to gain control or will become passive and stubborn much like a child on a tight rein. Clients with less developed verbal skills can experience a sense of success when interacting with the animal. Asking a dog to sit or offering food to an animal provides a positive interaction without the need for language, especially if you use hand signals. 
Not everybody is perfectly verbal. Individuals with lowered self-esteem and confidence can experience acceptance. And people with social anxiety can learn how to walk a dog in a public place. They're focused on the dog. They start not paying attention to all the people that are around them. Multisensory activities. Photographing or videotaping animals. Not everybody wants to be with an animal or they may have um, allergies. So there are other things we can do. Photograph or videotape the animals and ask yourself, what was it thinking? When that animal started doing that, what were they doing? My rooster, whenever he comes across food, he will, he will do this little cluck. And it's a very loud cluck. And he'll start scratching around like a little maniac. And that's him calling his girls to come in and eat. Very interesting. And he doesn't eat first. You know, he lets them eat first. You can scrapbook. Having people make scrapbooks of their animals or animals they like or animals doing silly things. You can have people learn about special animals at a rescue. What happened to this animal so I can understand the animal's courage and desire and all that kind of stuff. You can also look at special animals and unique friendships. Like I said before with the horse and the and the deer or dogs and deer dogs and rabbits there's, there's lots of odd combinations that happen that are very sweet you can find them on youtube story writing animals can provide an entity onto which the client may project or identify so storytelling from the animal's point of view as a means for the client to raise a metaphorical or even factual details of a topic otherwise difficult to talk about journaling you want to journal their training progress the training the animal how has it been going and looking for consistency and effectiveness. The use of metaphors and symbolism can also be very effective as well. What animal are you most like and why? If you're on the farm, you can say, pick one of the animals. Which one do you think is most like you and why? Other activities, memory and cognitive can be remembering the dog's name, breed or history, remembering the handler's name, giving commands, or remembering colors, shapes, and directions. So you may ask your client to pick up the blue ball and throw it to the left, helping them if they've had a stroke or have dementia or something like that. Problem solving, choosing a type of toy or treat, deciding where to go during a walk and how to get there, which, which commands are appropriate, what do you use for positive redirection? If if you're walking and the dog is pulling, how do you positively redirect that energy instead of getting angry with the dog? What can you do to help correct that behavior? Cautions. Client's physical and emotional response to a particular species of animal is based on previous direct and indirect experiences as well as their beliefs, desires, and fears about specific species. The role of animals in the client's life outside therapy sessions is another cultural consideration. Farmers, some farmers believe that nothing eats for free, and other people may not feel that way. So, you know, if you have somebody who is a vegan that doesn't believe in eating animals or, or harming animals, then, you know, they may have conflicts in their approach to dealing with certain animals. And pet owners, I mean, farmers, hunters, and pet owners may have widely different approaches and beliefs about how to interact with animals. Sanitation and the potential for disease must be addressed. Keep the animals up to date on their shots and screen them for all screen clients for potential allergies or sensitivities. Environmental distractions combined with the predictability of the client's behavior can present challenges to the counselor, particularly in an outdoor setting. And you know, animals can be unpredictable too. So you've got a client whose reaction may be unpredictable and an animal. Elderly and small children often report feeling safer around smaller animals because they were afraid of being knocked over by larger or more rambunctious animals. There are a variety of techniques that can be used to incorporate animals into counseling practice. Animals help develop self-esteem, confidence, assertiveness, empathy, mindfulness, distress tolerance, and effective communication skills and can help relieve anxiety. Now, I saw there were a bunch of things in here in the chat room. Using animals uh, to help with exposure therapy, if you want to use the animal, you know, maybe you're talking about, you know, exposure to places with people, you know, for somebody that has uh, social anxiety or agoraphobia. The animal can help people feel more calm. Now, obviously, they also use animals to a certain extent in exposure therapy to desensitize the person to fear of that particular animal like snakes or spiders and a lot of people 
Um, unfortunately, it's heartbreaking. A lot of people who are homeless or who've had pretty devastating lives relate really well to animals because the animals, animals typically haven't betrayed them and they have a sense of that unconditional positive regard because the animals, they perceive the animals as not having a secondary agenda, which generally they don't except for feed me. And animals, definitely, you have to choose animals that are fit for the client. You don't want to use, like, small children cannot handle rabbits because rabbits can kick hard enough with their back legs that they'll break their own backs. You don't want to have a small child trying to handle a rabbit. Animals that tend to be more unruly, kind of like Brewster, you know, they get excited, are going to be not ideal to have with a small child or an elderly person. And any animal that tends to be high energy may be great for a youth with ADHD who needs to get some energy out, may be awful for somebody with generalized anxiety who just needs to calm down for a moment. You want to make sure that the animal fits, the animal that you choose fits the needs of the person and you just don't pull in any, any random old animal. If you go to online to Agala, there is a whole certification program for equine-assisted therapy. I find that equines provide a very strong, calming presence. However, I haven't done nearly as much work with equines as I have with dogs, cats, and just general farm animals. And the other nice thing about animal-assisted therapy is the person, the client, does not necessarily have to own the animal. Horses, like Rachel points out, can be really expensive and can be, you know, challenging sometimes because I found with, with our donkeys, you know, dealing with hoof problems and stuff seems to be sort of an ongoing thing. Uh, if the person cannot afford animals, you know, obviously we don't want them to take them on. One thing they can do, which uh, it really depends on the client because it's hard to say goodbye, um, is fostering. And when people foster animals, they are keeping them until they find their forever homes. But the rescue facility, the rescue agency, generally pays for all the vet bills and all the food. The person is only required to give safety, love, and comfort to the animal until they find their forever home. That is an option. However, as I said, once you've had an animal living with you for a month or six weeks or more, sometimes you get attached and it's hard to say goodbye. We don't want to increase the trauma on clients. And animals are great for kids with ADHD, with autism, um, with uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. There's a lot of ways that you can use animals, especially animal-assisted activities, because children, well, people, I won't even just say children, a lot of people relate better to dogs and animals than they do to other people. So consider you know, how you might present that in, in your practice. And in children, rescuing can cause some attachment issues, but it also can help them, you know, it depends on the, it totally depends on the child. Um, in our household, we frame it as we've got slots. And if we keep this animal and that slot gets filled, then we can't rescue anymore. So do you want to keep this animal or let it go to another wonderful home and then have the ability to save another creature's life. For the most part, my children have generally um, chosen to let them go to their forever homes and bring another animal or set of animals in. But that's, that's really entirely up to the family. Um, even on adults, fostering can be hard because saying goodbye can be a challenge. I've got one that I'm taking on Friday that I've had for a little over a month now. And he's just the cutest little guy. But it's time for him to go to a home where he can get more attention. In response to Rachel's question, um, what do I think about birds for, ther for a therapy animal in a mental health office? I haven't worked much, much with birds. Um, so I would say you really need to know what you're doing with birds. My uncle had a gray macaw that bit off the top of his nose. So there are some dangers with the bigger birds. The smaller birds, you know, you can cage train them so they're not pooping everywhere. It would really depend on the bird. We have one, a cockatiel at home right now that, for no apparent reason, will just, and I th actually I think it's in response to the birds outside, but out of the clear blue, will just start screeching and squawking. And whenever he hears um, sirens on the television, he starts screeching and squawking. 
that can be really disruptive in a therapy session. Um, and part of that may be I don't know how to work with birds as well as I do dogs and cats. I can get dogs to settle down. Haven't figured out how to get Snowy to let it go when he gets upset. All righty, everybody. Have an awesome day. And I will see you um, Tuesday. I guess today's Thursday. Have a great weekend. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.